0: Welcome to another episode of Boundless Body Radio. I'm your host, Casey Ruff, and today we have another amazing guest to introduce to you now. Dave McGillivray is a race director, philanthropist, motivational speaker, author, and a seriously accomplished athlete. He is the organizer of the Boston Marathon, which he started working with in 1988. In his career, he has helped organize 1,400 over 1,400 events, which have raised literally hundreds of millions of dollars for charities. He has authored three books, including The Last Pick, his autobiography, which he wrote in 2006. Since then, he's also co-authored two illustrated and inspiring children's books. He was featured in the 2017 documentary called Boston, narrated by Matt Damon. He has completed 158 marathons, including the amazing World Marathon Challenge, where participants run seven marathons on seven continents in seven days. Wow. Wow. Think about that. That's insane. <laughs> He's also completed 48 consecutive Boston marathons, including 32 done at night when his directing duties are complete, making him the last place finisher of his own race. Dave McGillivray. Wow. What, a, what an inspiring dude you are. Thank you so much for coming onto our show. We um, are absolutely honored.
1: Thank you, Casey. Hey, you, you just gave my speech. So uh, <laughs> are there any
0: questions? That's, that was it. Thank you so much. And uh, we'll, this a, has okay, been nice. an episode about the <laughs> that was um, thank you. very kind. Absolutely. I I have to tell a lot of my guests that I have to greatly abbreviate their introductions. Otherwise the entire episode would be your introduction. (laughs) I'm holding in my hand. Um, one of the things your team sent me, which is a a list of all of your accomplishments. This is just physical accomplishments, like races you've done things you've organized. And it's three pages of very fine print full top (laughs) to bottom. It's amazing.
1: Well, it just, it just, proves that i'm getting old (laughs) you know over a period of time you know you wake up you accomplish something you go to bed and you wake up the next day and do it all over
0: again. Wow. Add it to the list. (laughs) Well, that's amazing. You have such a a unique and interesting story. And I'm so glad that you took the time to be here with us. I want to kind of start from the beginning. You, you talk quite a bit about defining moments. And so we thought we'd invite you here to learn about some of your defining moments in your life. I want to know what it was like for you growing up, what your experience was.
1: Yeah. Well, growing up here in the Boston area, obviously sports is, um, bit of a, a highlight of of people uh, around here in this community. And so, as a young boy growing up, um, I always wanted to sort of be a professional athlete, you know, play second base for the Boston Red Sox or guard for the Celtics, or you know, or running back for the Patriots, whatever. And um so I was just really passionate about sports. And so i I went out for some of the teams, the high school basketball team or the high school, baseball team. And unfortunately for me, I was, I was always the last one cut. And when I went, you know, sort of to the parks to, to play, my friends would pick sides and I was inevitably always the last one picked because I was the smallest of all of, all of the other guys. And so for me, it was, it was really, really difficult. I mean, at the time, yeah, I, I didn't have any you know, severe illnesses, I, I, you know, I didn't have leukemia, or I didn't have some of the things that other children were battling. But in my own world, yeah, I had, I had one thing that was really challenging me, and that was the concept of rejection. And I've always felt in life for me anyways, there's three types of pain. there's physical pain, but I, I've always felt I can overcome that by training hard. And then there's, there's mental pain. And similarly, you can, you can figure out ways to deal with that. But the toughest of all is emotional pain. How do you, how do you train for that? You know, how do you ward that off? And it's, mm. it's not easy. So, and always being the last pick or always being cut from the teams when I wanted to so desperately play um, was a, a, a defining moment in my life. And I remember going out for the high school basketball team for the final time. And I get cut at the end and the coach comes up to me, puts his arm around me and he looked down at me. Well, well, everyone actually (laughs) looked down at me, but, um, and he said, Dave, if you were five inches taller, you'd be my starting guard. And, you know, it, 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 that really hit me. I was like, if I was five inches taller and I turned to the coach and I said, coach, I thought it had to do with ability level, not how tall you were. So I went out on a limb and I challenged the center to one-on-one to 21 in front of all the guys who made the team. And he was six foot five and I was five, four point wow. three, eight, seven on on a, on a good day. And I beat him. And I walked off the court that day, probably at the ripe age of 15 and you know again a defining moment where i said to myself i will never ever ever allow anyone to tell me i'm not i'm not good enough and i went home that night i i put a sign over my bed and the sign read please god make me grow and you know i look back on my life and i said son of a gun he didn't make he did not make me grow <laughs> very much but then in retrospect i said well maybe he did and maybe maybe he made me grow in other ways. He made me grow, you know, spiritually and intellectually and morally and ethically. And he actually made me grow internally because that's where it's all happening, all of us. It's what's inside of us, um, not, not what's outside, not who we are physically, it's who we are internally. And so not to be denied, I just decided to take a different path and where no one had to choose me or pick me that, that I would just let my performance speak for itself. And that's when I started running because nobody can cut you from running. Wow! And I started setting all these personal goals of running my age on my birthday or running the Boston marathon or all these different things. And just, challenging myself, not necessarily to prove anyone wrong. You know, if someone said, you can't do that. I I wasn't out to prove anyone wrong. I was out to prove that I was right, that I could do what I set my mind to. And, you know, my running career in many, many, at many different levels, you know, took off from there.
0: Wow. I love that. That's such a great point and great story. And I love how you mentioned, you know, growth can happen in many different ways. We get asked oftentimes like how we're going to grow our business. And, you know, sometimes we'll answer like, well, we we're doing okay with the business. Maybe growth is spending a little bit more quality time with somebody, maybe listening a little bit more, maybe learning something that we didn't know before. And so I love that you mentioned there's so many different ways to grow. You also mentioned running your age, which I love. Um, (laughs) but I, I have to tell you, as you get older, that number gets bigger and bigger. How are you managing that these days?
1: Well, when I turned 12, there's this pond near where I live, and it was basically six miles around. So I woke up that morning, and just went out for a run and ran around the pond six miles. And and then, you know, you have the cake and the cookies and the ice cream. And I'm like, ah, I got to burn this off. So I ran around the pond again. So... You know, magically, it added up to 12 miles on my 12th birthday. So when I turned 13, I said, what did I do when I turned 12? I ran 12 miles. I might as well run 13 and then 14 and then 15. And I just kept on doing it. When I turned 50, I ran 50 and 60 when I turned 60. And I remember people used to come up to me and say, what are you going to do when you turn 90? (laughs) And, you know, I said, well, first of all, I want to be breathing. Secondly, I want to get out of bed. And then you know what? I'll decide then I don't have to decide now what I want to do 25 years from now um, but i I do make everyone aware of my motto in life, and that is it's my game, so it's my rules, and that's how I've lived my life um, so i can I can change the rules um. And and so I, I, I was never in fear of my my goal of running my age on my birthday, because at some point in time I said I can change, I can change the rules. Um so yeah, I mean the beauty about it is it's very personal. It's a connection with the past, it keeps me honest, keeps me motivated. My birthday's in August, so I train throughout the summer, knowing that it's about to approach. And, um, you know, my little rule is I don't have to actually do it on the birthday. I did for 40 years, but now it's give or take a couple of days, depending on what's going on in my life or what the weather might might be. I don't want to be foolish and hurt myself. So I want to set it up for success, not failure. So.
0: Love so that. yeah, I've been doing Lovely. it for 54 years. So cool. I love that. That's a great story. We are recording at the end of March 2021 and we try to release um episodes every you know two or three days. And it just it just so happens based on timing. This was not planned, just based on timing. This episode is going to come out on the third Monday in April <laughs> I wow. couldn't couldn't have picked a better time that is the day that the Boston Marathon is run the the race that you have done consecutively that you've organized for so many years but we have to go back we have to hear this is this story I this is one of my all-time favorite stories I have stolen it and shared it many many times with my clients I, I find it so emotional and inspiring and beautiful can you tell us about the first time you ran the Boston Marathon
1: Yeah, Casey. Um, So I remember 1970, listening to the radio broadcast of the Boston Marathon, and a gentleman from United Kingdom won. Ron Hill. It's a rainy day. I was out in the driveway with my dad working on his car, and I remember saying to him in the rain, as Ron was winning, someday, Dad, I want to run the Boston Marathon. Well, two years later, I woke up that morning, Patriots Day, and I asked my brother if he would drive me out to the start because I wanted to run the marathon. But before we went out, I called my grandfather and I said, Grandpa, I'm going to run that race in Boston. He said, oh, they call that the Boston Marathon. I said, well, that's a good name for it. (laughs) Um, I'm going to go run it. So he said, well, okay. I live near the course at Coolidge Corner. I'll see you there. And I said, where's Coolidge Corner? He said, that's at the 24 mile mark. I said, okay, grandpa, I'll see you at 24 miles. My brother drove me out to the start and off we went. And I'm running and running and got to the hills in Newton, about 18 to 19 miles. And bam, down I go flat out in the hills. I got taken to the Newton Wellesley Hospital in an ambulance. I get to the hospital. I call my parents. I say, come pick me up. They say, where are you? I'm in the Newton Wellesley Hospital. What are you doing there? (laughs) Never mind. Come pick me up. They picked me up, drove me home. I call my grandfather, no answer. Call him again, no answer. Finally, nine o'clock at night, he answers the phone. I said, grandpa, where have you been? He said, Dave, where have you been? I've been waiting for you all night. (laughs) Yo, <laughs> man! Kelly goes by. The street sweepers go by. No, Dave. I said, I know. I, 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 um, I, I quit. He said, You what? I said, I failed, Grandpa. I failed. He says, Nah, you didn't fail. I said, I didn't. What I do? He said, You learn. I said, What I learned? You learned that you cannot go along in life and set reckless goals. You had no business being in that race. You didn't train. You didn't do the work. You didn't earn the right. He said, I'll cut another deal with you. I said, what's that? He said, you train. There's a novelty. You train. Okay. And I'll be there waiting for you next year. I said, deal. Two months later, my grandfather died. And I just said, I have to do this in honor and tribute of the lesson he taught me. So I trained, trained, trained. And I was running 120, 130 miles a week. And the Boston Marathon came in 1973. I was 18 years old. And um, the day before the race, I got sick. And my parents said, you can't run. I said, I have to run. The newspapers are saying, Dave, running in memory of grandfather. They said, well, you're too sick. I said, well, can you give me something that very few other people have ever given to me before? They said, what's that? I said, a chance. Because mom and dad, isn't that all any of us ever want in life? Is a chance. Just let me toe the line. So they said, okay, and drove me out to the start in Hopkinton. And I took off. And I get to five miles and I was toast. Like I shouldn't be here. I was so sick. But I kept going. And then I get to the halfway point and I saw my parents, and there's my mother on the side. And what's she doing? She's crying. Why? Because that's what mothers do. They cry because they're going through more pain, worrying about you than you'll ever experience. That's
0: right. But
1: then there's my father, and what's he doing? He's he's taking pictures of my mother crying, and I'm like, okay, I got to keep going. I'm vindicated. Go go go! I kept going. I got to the point where I dropped out the year before in the hills in Newton. And I'm doing the survivor shuffle over the hills, and I get up over the hills, and finally I pass Boston College, and bam, down I go again. 21.5 miles, I'm out. I'm sitting on the curb, head between my legs, just saying, What a loser. Here I want to be an athlete. I want to be a professional athlete. And I'm always the last one picked, I'm always the last one cut. I drop out of my first Boston, I drop out of my second Boston. You know, something maybe this wasn't meant to be. And then another defining moment happened in my life. And unbeknown to me, I turned around and I'm sitting on the curb in front of the Evergreen Cemetery where they buried my grandfather. And there's his tombstone. I can see it from the road. Oh. And that son of a gun said he'd be there. Now, he wasn't there physically, he was there spiritually, because it's not all about the physical person, right? So I picked myself up and I finished my very first marathon, my very first Boston marathon in four and a half hours. And I vowed on that day, Patriots Day 1973, that I was going to run this race every year for the rest of my life an honor and tribute. The lesson my grandfather taught me, a very important lesson in life that you have to earn the right to do these things. And I've run the marathon now for the last 48 years.
0: Wow. That is such a beautiful story. I I love it. I love that phrase earn the right um do the work, you know, do the practice to to be able to show up in life. It's it's so so amazing. Um I you know, in preparation for this, we watched that the documentary mentioned in the introduction called Boston um to, to kind of get a sense of what the race is like. Um I talked to a few of my friends who have done the race and I asked them what what makes Boston special? Why why is Boston the one that everybody talks about? And I I heard, you know, the course is very unique and it's amazing and the fans, there's just fans the entire way. And you go through all these different towns and cities and the hills and tell me a little bit about what makes Boston so special to you.
1: Yeah, sure. I mean, first of all, it's the oldest continuous marathon in the world. So it's history, it's tradition, the fact that the greatest marathoners of all time have come to Boston and participated. And no matter what your ability level is, that if you get the opportunity to run Boston, you're running on the exact same course that some of the greatest athletes in the world, you know, have have run over and participated in. Um, Certainly the the character of the course itself, it's just the point-to-point aspect, the downhill at the beginning, um, you know, running through the eight cities and towns, all residential communities, people, you know, know, coming out of their houses on their porches, having cookouts on their front lawn. you got the grandparents, the parents, the kids, the dogs, the cats, the squirrels, you know, they're all out there um the most knowledgeable spectators and fans in the world they know exactly what to say how to say it when to say it um you don't say you're almost done when you have 8 miles to go because you're not almost done you know whereas in other races you may hear that and you're like I'm not almost done um so just knowledgeable fans um willing to support all the runners um you know going through Wellesley college and the Green tunnel with all the Wellesley um, you know, college students and and you know, of course the infamous Hills and Newton and the final one, Hotbreak Hill, and running by Boston College, and then um, you know, down into Brookline and ultimately into Boston and by Fenway Park and by the Sitco sign and right on Hereford, left on Boylston, heading down and finishing in front of the John Hancock Tower. And it just It doesn't get any better than that. And to run this race. Well, you, you have to know it. It isn't just like any, any other marathon in the world The topography can be debilitating. If you don't know how to run it, if you don't train on a course that is somewhat similar, you have to simulate this course in order to run it well too, in terms of in your training. Um, You know, so I would like to think it's managed pretty well. (laughs) Um, You know, everything is in place and organized very well. Um, 10,000 volunteers, great sponsors. Um, You know, what is there not to like about the Boston Marathon? And then the final part of it all is it's the holy grail of marathons throughout the world. It's the marathon that everyone aspires to. It's the Super Bowl, the World Series, the Kentucky Derby, the Tour de France um, of our industry. It's the only marathon other than the Olympic marathon that you have to earn the right to participate by qualifying. So just to set the standards based on gender and based on age and have people have a target, a magnet to go after, you know, in their training and in their racing and someday obtaining a BQ, that, that is, that, you know, again, for somebody who's just looking to accomplish something that is life changing, you know, those who, who organize this, make that possible for tens of thousands of people around the world.
0: So cool. Wow. And it always seems that weather is such a big difference maker. It seems like it could be snowing sideways or it could be like 90 degrees. <laughs> seems like highly yeah. variable that time of year.
1: You know, and that listen, Casey, a lot of times people might wake up in the morning, look out the window, see that the weather is nasty, and say, ah, I'm going to take today off. I look out the window, see that the weather is nasty, and say, "Yes." Why? <laughs> Not that I'm a glutton for punishment or a masochist, but I, you know, I want to train for for the toughest conditions so that if they present themselves on race day, I know what it's like. I've been through it before. Um, I've trained through it. I've experienced it. I've dressed for it properly. Um, so to me it almost doesn't matter what the conditions are on race day because i feel like i've already worked really hard at acclimating myself to any type of conditions that mother nature might throw our way and we certainly have experienced all of it as you have said being in the in the you know early spring here in new england you can get anything from you know almost snow but not Typically not snow, but you can get some really nasty cold rainy weather, or it could be a scorcher like it was in 2012 and, and be like an inferno and so hot that you know you have to make a conscientious decision. Is this something that's safe for you to do? So, so yeah, that that's a huge part of um you
0: know, the overall challenge of the race. Mm. Wow. Yeah. That's a lesson I had to learn the hard way. As a teenager, I was living in a town kind of in the desert and I was training for mountain bike races and it wouldn't rain very often, but when it did, I I didn't want to go train. I didn't want to get muddy and, you know, dirty up my bike. And so, you know, I'm training for this one particular race and never had ridden in the mud <laughs> and sure enough, wake up that morning and it's, it's snowing in the desert and it is muddy and wet. And I did horribly because I've never trained in those conditions. So I think that is So smart. I wish you could travel back and uh, help me out, (laughs) my my 18, 19-year-old self. Let's go back to you. So you're running the marathon every single year, and then they offer you the position. um, I think it was a technical director before it was the race organizer. But that, to you, would be Uh, a... Sorry, go ahead. No, so
1: 1987, it was an interesting year at the start of the marathon where um, the wheelchair... Participants took off first. And unfortunately, one hit a um, frost heave in the road and went down, and the next one went down, another one went down, and there was just carnage all over the place. So there was a really severe wheelchair incident. Um, and once they were able to deal with that over the next 10 or 15 minutes, then was um, the race. And unfortunately, um, What they had typically done is put up a rope in front of the starting line with officials holding the rope, um, waiting for instructions to move out of the way. The race is about to begin at high noon, but the official started just firing off the starter's pistol. Well, whatever the miscommunication was, the official shot the gun off and the rope was still there. And runners were tripping over the rope at the start. Oh, wow. Again, you know, two significant incidences at the start in 87. So in 88, the BA decided maybe they should, you know, bring someone in that is going to look at this a little closer and make sure that something like this never happens again. So that's how I was hired initially is to take care of the start. What I did with the wheelchair athletes is because the beginning of the marathon is, about a two to 300 foot drop from the start to about the half mile point. I just thought maybe if we slow them down, even if they hit a pothole or something, it won't be as severe. So we we instituted a control start and we had done that for the next 30 years. Wow. Um, so, and there was never an incident like that again. And then with the rope, I just took the rope away, <laughs> you know, and put a human chain of volunteers in front and was, you know, so I could tell them to move out of the way once we were ready to stop the race. Mm. So I, I I kid people by saying, you know, they brought me in, I, I removed the rope and I've had the job ever, ever <laughs>
0: since. Wow.
1: Uh, so yeah, I was technical d- director, in title anyways um, from 88 to 2000. And then 2001, um, they just changed my title to race director.
0: Gotcha. Well, okay. So I've volunteered in events before and it's a lot of fun, but you also sit there and watch everybody else do the event (laughs) and, and, you know, it's nice to help out, like I said, but it's, it's kind of a bummer because you're not the one doing it if you're helping out with it. So Tell us about the decision you made to take on the job, despite not being able to be a participant in the race that you love so much.
1: Well, yeah, it was difficult when I was offered the position. I was like, what do I do? Do I run in the race or help run the race? And, you know, there were sleepless nights trying to decide, but I said, well, how can I walk away from an opportunity to be one of the directors of the race? You know, this is the Boston Marathon you know, the most prestigious marathon in the world. And I said, but I made a commitment to myself and to my grandfather to run in it. What do I do? And make a long story short, I said, well, I'll take the job and figure out the other piece later. And I was standing at the finish line of that year's marathon in 88 and high five and everyone. And, you know, everyone was excited. And, you know, I was, I guess, unfortunately on selfishly full of self-pity because I hadn't run. And I tapped a state police trooper on the shoulder who was standing next to me. And I said, will you do me a favor? And he said, what? I said, can you drive me back to the start? And he said, why? Did you forget something? And I said, yeah, I forgot to run. (laughs) So he drove me back to the start at eight o'clock at night. And I ran the whole thing by myself, finished it a little after eleven o'clock at night, and was the last finisher, obviously. And I've been the last finisher of the Boston Marathon for the last
0: 34 years. That's amazing. <laughs> it's so cool. I love that story. It's fantastic. From from this just mythical race, there's so many. Amazing stories, and I, I just wanted to kind of highlight a few or see if you had a few that you wanted to share with us, but one involves um, a, a tree that you didn't necessarily ask for that's at your house. Can you tell us about that?
1: Yeah, so I, I got a call one day from a woman. Her name was Katie, and she said, Hi, my name is Katie, can I come visit you at your office?" And I said, "Sure. I mean, I'll never deny anyone the opportunity to visit." To call me, to email me, I'll email everyone back. I'll call everyone back. I'm no better than anyone else. And um, so she came to my office and, you know, surprisingly, I didn't know she was in a wheelchair. And so she went into the conference room and I followed her in. and, And then, you know, I looked across the table and my jaw dropped. And I realized that Katie was 36 inches tall. And she said, I have a question to ask you. I said, okay, go ahead. She says, can I run the Boston Marathon? I paused and I said, you want to run the Boston Marathon? Yeah, I want to run the Boston Marathon. And I paused and I said, all right, well, ask me a a difficult question. (laughs) She said, I can? I said, yeah. I "I can run the marathon. I said, yeah. And she says, well, I, I have a caveat. I said, what's that? Says, my marathon is 26.2 feet. I said, all right, I get it. Your game, your rules. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so she trained like the Dickens, you know, in her walker and all. And marathon day came and helicopters are flying and, you know, 20,000 runners are getting ready. And I barricaded 26.2 feet from the starting line down the course. She come out in a wheelchair. She got in her walker. I lined her up. She took off, took her about seven and a half minutes to do the 26 feet. And I put a laurel wreath on her head and a medal around her neck Wow! and gave her a big hug. And, um, about nine hours later, I was running my marathon at night and I'm finishing up running down Boylston street. And then the distance I could see one person waiting for me at the finish line. And it was little Katie waiting for me mm. this time. And she put a laurel wreath on my head and a medal around my neck, both of which she made for me. And she looked up at me and she said, I beat you. <laughs> <laughs> and um, little Katie died um, a little while later. Um, but I felt I felt, um, you know, I felt goodness in my heart that she was able she got a chance. Like I said, she got a chance to run the Boston Marathon and to do it her way. And um, so about a year later, I'm sitting in my home office and this landscape company pulls up in front of my house. And I'm like, what the heck? What are they doing here? And they pull out a tree out of the back of the truck and they go into my yard and they start planting this tree in my yard. I'm like, I didn't order a tree. Like, what the heck is going on here? But so before I ran out to say, "Hey, you got the wrong house," my phone rang, and that's <laughs> little Katie's mother. She says, Is "There a landscaping company there?" I said, "Yeah." She says, "Are they planting a tree?" And I said, "Yeah." She says, "Well, that's Katie's tree, and we wanted to give it to you so you can you can water it and nurture it and watch it grow over the years the way Katie would have." And And think of Katie every time you look out the window to see that tree. Wow. And I have pretty much every day since. That's amazing.
0: Wow. Recently, we just learned about the passing of Dick Hoyt, um, of Team Hoyt. What an amazing team they were and the things they were able to accomplish in their years of doing Boston. There's now a statue of them near the finish, if I'm not mistaken. Can you tell us a little bit about Team Hoyt and what they were able to do?
1: Yeah, I mean, I... I met, I met the Hoyts when I was running in the Falmouth road race back in the early eighties. And I'm running, I'm running. And then alongside me comes this guy pushing a young boy in a wheelchair. I had never seen anything quite like that before, because then there wasn't, (laughs) they were the first. And at first I was just stunned. And then I was inspired. And then I was challenged. (laughs) You know, I'm like, (laughs) I'm not going to let them beat me. How can this guy pushing a wheelchair beat me? And son of a gun beat me. (laughs) Um, So I went up to him afterwards and introduced myself and asked him who he was. And we struck up a good conversation. And then I said, hey, I I put on a bunch of triathlons. Would you ever like to do one of my triathlons? He said, sure. But I have to do it with Rick. I said, well, how are you going to do that? He said, I don't know. But you and I are going to figure that out. Okay. And we did. And the very first triathlon he ever did was uh, one in my hometown. And, and then um, after that, uh, as the story goes, I won't get into all the, there's so many stories about my relationship with them, but uh, Dick called me up one day and said, Rick wants to ask you a question. I said, what's that? He he wants to ask you if you can get us into the Ironman triathlon in Hawaii which I had already done two or three times. And I'm like, how the heck am I going to do this? <laughs> and I did. And they get in. Unfortunately, the first year, they didn't make the swim cutoff. But then they asked me if I can get them in again the next year. And I did. And they finished. And the rest is history in terms of their triathlon career. And they ended up you know, being inducted into the Ironman Triathlon Hall of Fame. And then just a couple of years ago, I flew to Arizona to induct them into the USA Triathlon Hall of Fame. Um, so you know and they've run Boston over thirty times. They've done over eleven hundred events together. And you know I always say you know Dick and Rick's athleticism was empowering and inspiring. But what was even more inspiring was just um, you know the the path that they paved for for inclusion for others who maybe once were just intimidated by all of this. And and they broke down the walls of that intimidation and inspired others to do what they were doing. And and they were probably one of the first to run in marathons for a greater purpose than just themselves. I love um, that. And that's what I'll always remember the Hoyt's um by is just, you know, their unselfishness in in opening the door to so many others, especially those with disabilities who otherwise would never be able to compete in races or triathlons. Um, but they were the spark that made that
0: happen. That's so beautiful. Wow. That is so inspiring. We'll make sure we link to some of their stories in the show notes because it's worth, it's worth a watch and worth a listen. And I would make sure you have some Kleenexes nearby as you um, are watching their story. It's, it's very inspiring. Tell us, tell us about what happened in 2013. Um, that was, I, I mean, to me, just completely unthinkable that something like that could happen. Um, what, what was it like, um, you know after after the bombing and you realizing that that had occurred at your race
1: well um the year before was the hot year and so you know and and in 2007 there was a nor'easter and we were just having a lot of bad luck with weather and just so many different challenges it's tough enough to put on the Boston marathon just on a good day let alone being challenged with mother nature or anything else but i woke up on the morning of of the marathon in 2013, and it was awesome, glorious day, beautiful weather, and I said, "Finally, we got a good one." And we got to the start, and you know, I had a I had a uh, 26 second moment of silence for the victim of the Sandy Hook shooting. It's pretty ironic. It was 26 seconds, 26 victims, and it was. Um, little did I know, you know that. About eight hours later, we would be experiencing our own tragedy 26 miles away wow. from that very spot where we were remembering the 26 victims. Um, but the race took off and I was on the lead motorcycle and everything was great. We got to the finish and it was all good stuff happening. I went into the medical tent. and There wasn't very much carnage going on in there, everything was was good. And I went to all the service areas, checked with all the team captains, everything's good. You know, and the day was getting on and I thought, well, this thing's on automatic pilot. I might as well head out to the start now and and do my run. And I got to the starting line and I had two state police troopers with me. And all of a sudden my phone rings and someone at the finish said, you gotta get back here. There's been two explosions. And uh, you know, my my wife and kids were sitting in the bleachers, So of course I thought of them first. And oh no. Uh, my wife and the cell service had got knocked out. So I couldn't even get a hold of my own family. Ugh. So worrying like crazy, you know, were you know, did th- th- they get impacted by the bombs? I, I had no idea. So we we got back to the finish and the first thing I did was go into the medical tent. And um, because a few hours earlier, I went in and there was nothing going on. And I went in a couple of hours later and there was a lot going on. And the tent was full, but not of runners. So I I left the tent um, to go find my family. And I went to go up to the finish line and a police officer stopped me and said, hey, where are you going? I said, I'm going up to the finish to find my, my family. And they said, you can't go up there. I said, well, I'm the race director here's my ID. And he said, it's not your race anymore. Wow! I was like, huh? So there's nothing I could do. So 6,500 runners were stopped about a half a mile away or so um, and a mile away. And, And so I had to just go back on the job and focus on my job and taking care of these people and so the day went on and a lot of things happened, but generally that was sort of my my experience. And I didn't actually go home for a couple of days because I was just busy dealing with all of this. And wow. when I got home, I obviously my family was able to evacuate and they were safe. Got it. And wow. my seven year old son came up to me and he gave me a hug and he said, Dad, said, I never want you to direct that race again. I mean, my seven year old associated my job with danger for the first time. So it was a, it was emotionally difficult, you know, because you realize that not just those who were physically impacted, um, you know, sort of had to deal with this is a lot of people were impacted, even my own family, but, um, You know, a couple months later after, you know, we started to recover and all that, my son come up to me and said, hey, dad, remember I told you I never want you to direct that race again? I said, yeah, Luke, I remember. He said, you know why? I said, why? He said, because I want to direct it. (laughs) (laughs) And it just, it kind of said, all right. So we persevere, you know, we recover, we get stronger, Boston strong. And even my son. And even to this day now, he is an amazing runner himself right now. He, he's 15. He's a freshman in high school. He's setting freshman records. He's like the second be- best freshman in the state. And, uh, you, know, you know, I go back to that moment and I thought, you know, not only will he never come back to the Boston Marathon, he'll probably never run and never want to be around crowds again in his life. And, but now he's,
0: uh, he's, he's stronger than ever. Wow. That's super inspiring. Uh, so 2020 rolls around, you know, it's winter time starting to prepare probably for 2021 more than you are 2020 at that point. Um, but things are starting to kind of change and something comes along and, um, you know, I, I think by March of 2020, most people realized that things were going to be different for a little while. So, when when was it for you that you started to realize that um, 2020 may or may not happen?
1: Um, well, I, I think it was first the announcement uh, by the governor and the mayor that we would have to postpone the Boston Marathon, and I think that just opened everyone's eyes and and made us all realize. That See if we got to postpone the marathon. What about all the other events? Um, I had 35 events. My company, DMSE Sports, we we're consultants to the BAA. We are not employees, so I have my own business and and we direct a lot of races. And we had 35 of them, lock and loaded, for 2020. And one by one, they just all went over the cliff on us. Um, and you know. Throughout my entire forty-year career, fourteen hundred events, I, I always felt that this industry was bulletproof. You know that nothing would ever bring us to our knees. It's just it's the type of industry that people gravitate to in good times and in challenging times. You know you you go to yourself because really what our industry, in my mind, is all about is. well, it's funny because when people used to say to me, what do you do for a living? I used to mumble I was a race director and they're like, what is that? What do they do? <laughs> Chalk mark in the road, yell go. <laughs> and now when people say to me, what do I do for a living? I say, I, I help raise the level of self-esteem and self-confidence of tens of thousands of people in America. That's perfect. Because that's what we do, right? <sighs> and so I thought by, by virtue of the fact that that's what this industry does. Um, it's never going to go away. And then this pandemic comes along and it just knocks us to our knees and all my events are gone in a matter of a month or two. And I'm like, now what do we do? And after, again, being full of pity, I said, put your big boy pants on and figure it out. Um, People are dying. People are sick. So you lost a couple of road races. You know, get over it. Figure it out. What are your assets? You know, uh, what are your skill sets? Are they transferable? Of course they are. So we pivoted in the word of 2020. We pivoted and we started doing outdoor drive in movies and we started doing COVID test sites and renting our road race equipment to restaurants for outdoor dining. And we started doing outdoor graduations for schools. And we just started cobbling up some business so we could keep a pulse. But then the winter came and all that went away. And then it's like, uh uh-oh, now what? And uh, we were very fortunate that we got a phone call from an organization called CIC Health here in Boston. And they were retained by the Commonwealth to stand up two mass vaccination sites here in Massachusetts, Um, one at Gillette Stadium and one at Fenway Park. And they said to us that they need what they called logisticians I never knew I was a logistician, but I guess I am, <laughs> you know, they want operation people, logistical people, people who know how to move masses of humanity. That's what we do. And I said, sign us up. So we stood up Gillette, we stood up Benway, and then we opened up the Reggie Lewis center in Roxbury. And then we just opened up the Heinz convention center um, just the other day. And what's ironic about that is, you know, we what we're doing now is probably way more critical and valuable than what we were even doing before. And what we were doing before was critical and valuable to, to society, you know, and, um, but, you know, keeping people healthy, keeping people alive and even helping to bring back our own, our own industry. The more, the more shots in the arms we can give, the quicker we're going to be back out on the road running in road races, So it just seemed, you know, appropriate that we do this. Yeah. Um, but now we're at the Heinz and in a couple of weeks, it would have been the Boston Marathon if this pandemic wasn't here. And at the Heinz, at the Boston Marathon, we would be giving out bib numbers
0: <laughs> to
1: all these runners. And now at the Heinz during the week leading up to what would have been the Boston Marathon, we'll be giving out vaccine shots. Wow to run to to people. But what's interesting too, is that because our race was postponed till October, the idea now is to give out the vaccine shots in April so we can give out the bib numbers in October.
0: I love that. Wow. Yeah. I love that. That's great. That's great. Yeah. I read that article that kind of talked about you kind of managing those sites and you're right. It was a year of adaptation and people needed to pivot and what a great use of your resources and a new job title that you didn't know you had. That's great. Exactly. <laughs> uh, well, um, super, I'm super, I'm genuinely curious about this. Seven marathons, seven continents, seven days. How, how is that even possible? What was that like for you?
1: Well, again having run across the united states in 1978 averaging 40 50 miles every day so it's almost running two marathons a day for 80 straight days um i ran up the east coast of america averaging about the same my point being is i've i've covered the distance you know you know day after day after day throughout my career although you know i i was at this time now 63 I hadn't run back to back to back to back, you know, marathons or 20, 30 mile days like I had when I was in my twenties and thirties, but I still felt like I could train myself and earn the right to do this. So when I was given the opportunity, I said, you know, let me before I decide to do it, let me see if this if this is doable for me. So one day one week I went out and I ran a a marathon in my neighborhood on Sunday and and then Monday I ran another marathon and Tuesday I ran another marathon and Wednesday I ran a half, Thursday, a half, Friday, a half. And Saturday I finished up with running the Boston marathon course. So I ran four marathons and three half marathon distances in a week for training. And I said, I think I can do this. Um, So I committed to it. And when it was all said and done, it was interesting. It wasn't as much the running part of it, because when I was running, I was in my element and I was in the moment, but it was the rat race in between, you know, jumping on a plane, flying all the way to Antarctica, get off the plane, run a marathon in Antarctica, get back on a plane, fly to Cape Town, South Africa. The difference in temperature is about 80 degrees between like, you know, five degrees in Antarctica and 85 degrees or whatever in Cape town and you're running a marathon like 10 hours later, and then you jump on a plane and we flew to Perth, Australia, 12 hours on the plane. So you're recovering at 35,000 feet. So, you know, obviously that's difficult sitting in a, uh, a a chair, you know, a seat on a plane for, for 12 hours and trying to recover from just having run a marathon or two or three or four or five or whatever. So we did Perth, and then Dubai, and Asia, and then um, Lisbon, Portugal, Cartagena, and um, South America, and Colombia, and then finished up with a marathon in Miami. Um, So yeah, seven marathons, seven days, seven (laughs) continents. What's the big deal?
0: No big deal. (laughs) No big big deal deal. Wow. The logistics of that are just mind boggling. That is an amazing, amazing accomplishment. Amazing. They can set it up. I know it's a very limited number of people that ever do it, but yeah, that is, that is such a cool thing. We've talked about you, you organizing the race we've talked about and all the races that you organize, um, all the, all the money that you have raised for charities, all the races that you participated in yourself. When you look back on your life at this point, what are you the most proud of?
1: I think it's, um, given people an opportunity to feel good about themselves. Um, I know when I was a young boy, you know, and I just wanted a chance and I, I feel like I was just getting rejected at every turn. Um, but then ultimately I did get a few chances and I seized the moment and for me, you know, Putting on these events, that's how I feel. Um, What I'm I'm accomplishing is giving other people a chance to be able to, um, to do this. I mean, people say to me all the time, what's the toughest part about running a marathon? And I always say the toughest part is signing the application. Because, you know, you have to have courage and guts to do that, to make that commitment but then as my grandfather says you have to earn the right to do it mm-hmm. so you got to do the work and once you do the work then you tow the line you tow the line you answer the gun you run the course you cross the line you get your medal and magic happens you, you go home feeling good about yourself and there's nothing more powerful in this world than to feel good about yourself because it's the foundation by which we accomplish anything in our lives mm-hmm. and i just feel like by giving people this opportunity, you know, that that they can accomplish something. You know, it's interesting. I I do a lot of motivational speaking. And a lot of times a kid might say to me, what do you want to be when you grow up? You know, and I'm like, well, what makes you think I want to grow up? (laughs) But what do I want to be when I grow up? That's a good question. And then I say, I was driving down the highway one day and I saw a billboard. And the billboard had one word on it and the word was accomplisher. And I said, that's it. It's exactly what I want to be. I just want to be an accomplisher. I want to set a goal, work hard, earn the right, do it, check it off, move on to the next one. I just want to accomplish things in life. I want to make a difference. Um, So, you know, that's
0: what's important to me in life. You've certainly made a difference. You wrote you've written three books. Um, is that correct?
1: Yeah, it's actually four now. My last one was, um, uh, it's actually launching it in two weeks. Um, it's called finish strong. Um, and it's about the seven marathons in seven days on seven continents. Oh, Cool. Wow. So it's three children's books. And then, um, you know, my, my original book, the
0: last pick. Gotcha. The last pick, um, is great. And I'm so glad you wrote it, but I'm also really, really glad you decided to write the children's books. And I want to talk about a particular challenge in the book, Dream Big. Can you tell us what that challenge is?
1: Yeah, well, when I decided to write the children's books, I didn't want children just to read it, say, oh, that was nice, put it down, and then you know, go play ping pong or something. I, 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 want, I, I want there to be some you know, action as a result of it. And so at the end of each of the books, I have um, a what's called Dream Big Marathon Challenge. And it's um, running 26 miles, reading 26 books, and doing 26 acts of kindness. So it's the three pillars of what I consider important points in our lives. Um, 26 miles, health and fitness. 26 books, education, 26 acts of kindness, giving back and do it over whatever period of time, a month or two months, whatever it takes. And if a kid does it and fills out the form, then they mail it to me and I mail them a medal. And I have thousands and thousands and thousands of kids across this country doing the dream big marathon right now.
0: Wow. I love that. What a great call to action. This has been such an amazing conversation and we have just barely scratched the surface um, of your life and everything that you've done and all the, all the joy and cheer that you've spread all over the world. And I ask you um, what is one simple thing that you'd want somebody to take away from this conversation today that they can apply in their life?
1: Um, well, a, a couple of things. One is I think the worst injustice we could ever Due to ourselves is to is to underestimate our own our own ability level, um, and that those who say it cannot be done should not interrupt those who are doing it. Um, and in these times, you know, given what's going on now with this pandemic, I do truly believe that the comeback is is always stronger than the setback. And I think such will be the case for all of us.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I I agree. It's it's nice to feel um, optimistic after that year. It was so hard on so many people, but feeling like we might be on the other end and you certainly are doing your part and helping out and spreading your word and helping people get vaccinated. I just, I, it's such an honor to have you on the show and to be able to talk to you. You're somebody I followed for a long time. And and again, I I just think it's such a wonderful message to share and earning the right is just such a, you know, important thing that, you know, needs to be spread around. I I really love that. Tell us uh, where people can go to find you if they want to connect with you.
1: I just our website, www.dmsesports.com.
0: So dmsesports.com. Awesome. That's great. We will link to that in the show notes. Dave McGillivray, thank you so very much. Again, we're so grateful for you, for all of your work and for taking time to be on our show today. You're such an inspiration and it's an absolute honor to have you on. Thanks so much, Casey. Appreciate it. Same here. Absolutely. And this has been another episode of Boundless Body Radio.